following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. It's great to be here with you. It's a privilege to share God's Word with, uh, with our home church, and so it's great to be with you. So we'll be in Genesis 3 this morning, and Genesis 3 comes just right after Genesis 1 and 2, clearly. In Genesis 1 and 2, God paints a picture of creation, right? He speaks and creates. And it says the world was without form and it was void. And he begins to speak and to create and gives form uh, to the formlessness. He starts to speak and to create and he, he brings about beauty and goodness to what was, uh, what's needed to be shaped. Well, he calls all of that very good, or all of that good. And the pinnacle of his creation was humanity. Male and female, he created them in his image to uh, take part in what he was already doing, forming and filling. And he gives them a purpose in the world. He calls that purpose, them, the image bearers of God, forming and filling, them making that purpose their own. He calls that very good. But when we look out at the world and your experience with it, when you look out and you, you, uh, you, you and, and, uh, experience the, the brokenness that's there, can you say this is very good? Your relation to the world, can you say it's very good? And if you're honest, deep down, even if you don't want to admit it, you know that something's not right. Something's not right. It's not very good. Every person on the planet has to come to terms with this. Whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever, you have to come to terms with the brokenness that's in the world. You have to answer that question, what went wrong? Why is this so broken? And how you answer that question, what you think the source behind all of the brokenness is, will lead to the solutions that you come up with. How do we fix the brokenness? Well, our passage gives us the reason why things are broken the way they are places the blame on the real place uh, that it should be, gives us the true reason behind all of our problems, and then gives us a solution to them. So let's look at this together. We're in Genesis chapter 3, where we read uh, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, and the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and then they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loin, themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us 
to know him. I want to look at four things together as we explore this passage. Uh, alliteration is awesome. The culprit, the confusion, the chaos, and the champion. So let's look at those uh, together this morning. Let's look at the culprit. We see in, Gen- in Genesis 3, verse 1, that the serpent creeps up into the garden. He creeps there and he's craftier than and any other beast of the field. The term crafty is the Hebrew word arum, and it doesn't carry negative moral connotations in the word in our uh, in, in English even. Crafty or cunning uh, are both used, um, and they can be seen as negative in their aim, or they can be seen as positive in their aim. Well, we see really quickly that this aim of this cunning serpent, this shrewd serpent, was to detract and fight against the God who had created him and created all things and God's people. You know, in the ancient world, the serpent was actually viewed as having mystical wisdom and, de- and it was a demonic and hostile creature. So whenever the people of God would have heard this as God is revealing him, himself to his people and Moses here as he writes these words, we see a serpent, one that was already being demonized even in that culture. It's not, uh, it's not um, uncommon in that time. Even in, in Egypt, where the Israelites would have been coming from at this point, Wajet, the patron goddess of lower Egypt, is symbolized, represented as a snake. You see this as the Pharaoh wears his crown, and there's a, uh, a snake there that symbolizes his power. We know that as the Bible progresses, that this serpent, even though it's not clearly said here, just says he's, a, uh, he's just one of the beasts of the field, the operative force behind this serpent, or the serpent itself, is who became known as Satan, the one who deceives, the adversary, the accuser. We know that in the context that this has to be the devil because he's the only one at this point operating against the goodness of creation. He's fighting against God and against his people. He rebelled and now he's trying to tempt and create more problems for the people of God and for God himself. The main objective of this deceiver this adversary, is to cause distrust, distrust to breed in the hearts of his people. And as a result, for them to rebel against him as he did. He was in the garden, and as we read this passage, you see that his method actually was successful. He caused confusion for Eve as the man stands idly by. So our second point is this, is that he causes confusion. You see, the woman and the man, they both fall differently, but they both fall. They fail in their responsibilities. But what does he do as he deceives the woman? He says, does God actually say? The one that the people knew, of uh, uh, the, the God who had formed them, the God who had come into relationship with them, had called himself by a name, Yahweh. Elohim was the generic word for God. You see what the serpent does here at the outset. He says, does Elohim really say? He doesn't say, does Yahweh, does the covenant God, the one you're in relationship with say? He says, did God, generic God, does he say? And then he asks a question of Eve and one commentator says he intentionally misconstrues the command of God. He formulates a question designed to get the woman to express the command in her own words. She doesn't just verbatim say what God had revealed to them. She expresses the command that God gave in her own words. She adds that the tree was not to be touched. God never said that the tree wasn't to be touched. He just said it wasn't to be eaten. The narrative just continues as if that miscue is just an, it's this obvious addition, but it's just, here you go. This is what they do with it. What are you going to do with it? 
In Eden, Sinclair Ferguson says, the serpent persuaded Eve and Adam that God was possessed of a narrow and a restrictive spirit bordering on the malign. After all, the serpent whispered, isn't it true that he placed you in the garden full of delights and he's now denied them all to you? You see what he does. He continues, Ferguson does. He says, it was intended to dislodge Eve from the clarity of God's word. As he says, did God actually say? Later, he focuses on an attack on the authority of God's word. You will not surely die. But it was more, it was an attack on God's character. He gets Eve to believe uh, and to think, what kind of God would deny you the pleasure and joy if he really loved you? If he really loved you, he allows you nothing and yet he demands that you obey him. Eve's ears were, open, or were then closed off to God's word and her focus was shifted from a God who created them, who actually gave them all the trees of the garden to eat, to have dominion over everything and one restriction. He actually highlights that one restriction so that that's her main focus and that causes her to misconstrue and, and to be confused about the character of God. Do you see that? We're still facing that confusion to this day. There was this uh, story I heard once of a woman who went to a conference and they were talking about adoption, uh, talking about not adopting children, but us as God's children being adopted into his family. Um, and she said she was remembering at this point when she was really young, they were exploring this idea of, of God making us his own and bringing us into his family, um, that her older sister was up hanging uh, uh, and, and this was her normal thing, her father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. She said that she was suddenly filled with the urge to go and, and do that for her father as well, even though she was really young. She wanted to love him in a childlike way and come to him and, and show him her, her love, but she couldn't reach the clothesline. So she goes, takes her daddy's shirt, and she sees that a wheelbarrow is sitting there uh, by the clothesline, and she thinks, same thing. I'll hang this on the wheelbarrow, but she doesn't realize that the wheelbarrow is rusty. So she hangs the clothes on the wheelbarrow. And when her dad gets home, instead of showing appreciation and love, he punishes her severely. She re, re, uh, is remembering this and recounts it in her mind as she's thinking about the love that the father, that they're talking about, this love of God for her. And she realizes that there's this disconnect and she talks to her counselor about it. And she said, uh, uh, she was understanding that she was, was having a hard time believing that God was actually concerned for her, that he loved her, that he was for her. And that because of Jesus, that she was in a relationship with him and that he looked at her kindly. She said she recounted this. And as she talked to her counselor, she says um, that she began to understand. Um, she said, I told my counselor the memory and said that if, uh, I guess if the father saw me, if God saw me standing there next to the wheelbarrow with a ruined shirt on, that he would forget the shirt and he would hug me. The counselor says wisely, you still don't understand fully. God would not overlook the shirt, but he would take it. He would put it on. He would wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. That's who Eve was in a relationship with, with the creator, the father who loved her. And the devil, the serpent, crafty as he was, got her to, to think that this father was not for her that God didn't delight on her, in her. And so she was confused and she rebelled. Notice that the man is, is, is standing idly by. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It just says he was standing there with Eve. He was with her. She hands him the fruit and he just takes it uncritically, doesn't even think about it. Notice that the text doesn't say he's actually deceived. 
He just does it. He doesn't fulfill his responsibility because maybe he's just confused about it. Do you understand when God created the world, he said Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of his creation were to have dominion over all things, all of creation. It says over the beasts of the field, the creeping things. Well, guess what creeps up under the garden? A serpent who is craftier than the beasts of the field. He was just another one of these beasts that, that God had given Adam dominion over. One of my professors, Mike Williams in seminary said, Genesis 3 should have read, and a serpent crept into the garden and Adam killed it. Adam's confused about his responsibilities here. He goes and just idly by and allows things, allows his wife to be, to be deceived when he had the word of God. He doesn't do and fulfill his responsibility. And what happens after that is that chaos ensues. Chaos happens. So we ask the question as we look at the world, how bad is it? What's broken? The answer to that question is everything. Everything is. There's this great book on poverty alleviation. Um, uh, a couple of guys, Fickard and Erickson, it's called When Helping Hurts. They say that because of the fall, all of our relationships we experience with the world, with God, with others are, are in, uh, in, a, in a form of poverty. We're poor in relation to all these things. They say that our four foundational relationships, the, 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 the relationships that we have and God created us to have with himself, with ourselves, like as we approach ourselves, with others and with creation are all fundamentally broken now. They say they're all broken. And, and, uh, and that's clear. If you think about your relationship with God before you became a believer and even now, there's still this sense of shame and brokenness that we feel that causes us to run from him when we fail, right? If you're in harmony with him, you would go to him. He says, come and approach me and we hide. We try to earn his favor through good works. And we think that if only we have perfectly hung up that shirt without rust on it, on the clothesline, that God would love us, that the father would love us. We are meant to glorify him and enjoy him forever is what the shorter, our Westminster Shorter Catechism says. But it's hard at times, right, to enjoy him, to give him glory. Well, because there's a poverty of what Erickson, Fickard and Erickson say is of spiritual intimacy, that now we deny God's existence and authority. We're materialistic and we worship false gods and we run to other gods that fail us. The problem is, if this problem is so big, if our relationship with God is a chasm that like, we can't bridge, we still try to do it anyway. So what are the ways that you try to, to bridge that? And if you're not a believer here, I guarantee you that in some way you are trying to fix the brokenness that you experience in the world. And if you're not a believer and you think that you can earn his favor, you're going to uh, run yourself into the ground and still never think that you're satisfied, that he loves you. When I was in high school, that's what it was for me. I always thought I needed to pray more. I needed to to work more. I needed to tell more people about Jesus. And then, the, then my, my father would love me. The problem was that it was never enough. And I would still make mistakes and still feel miserable. I didn't see him as a father who loved me because of, of his own approach of me. I saw him as one who was calling for me to do uh, for him and not be in communion with him. Our relationship with ourselves is broken. Do you realize that's what the, the people do there were only two of them in the garden and the animals. And what do they do? They get fig leaves and sew loincloths together for themselves and they hide. Our relationship with ourselves 
is broken now because of this. You see, people are uniquely created in the image of God and thus are in, have inerrant worth and dignity, but we experience a poverty in our beings. We either have God complexes or low self-esteem. We cover ourselves with shame and nakedness. And we try to control how other people perceive us. And we try to control even how we perceive ourselves by performing or whatever it is that we do to try to fix our identity on. The next relationship that's broken is our relationship with other people. You see that they hid not just because of shame in, in themselves, they hide from each other. There's no one else in the garden with them. God created us to be in relation to other people. And we, we, uh, we're not on islands, but we have this poverty of community. We've experienced that shame and, this, uh, 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 and, and self-centeredness and exploitation and abuse of other people and of ourselves. And we cover ourselves from, the, from others' view. And finally, the uh, relationship with the rest of creation. This is the one we experience in our work. We experience as anyone who tries to tend the garden um, and you just realize the weeds come up more than the grass and, and then the fruit. And it takes so much more to subdue it and to produce bounty. We have a poverty when it comes to our stewardship of God's creation. Everything is broken. That's the chaos that we experience. If you're honest, when you look out at the world, you experience these things or maybe all of them at certain times. I experienced it this week at the, the loss of our family pet, which was one of the hardest things I've had to deal with in a long time. Um, but I experienced it acutely. Death. It just made me think about fragility of life and, um, and how we all things are moving toward decay because of sin. And even though you expect it in some ways, you don't expect it and you don't want it. We naturally have this visceral reaction against it. Well, the reason why my dog had to die was because of the brokenness of sin um, and the chaos that we experience. If you're honest with yourself, you know that this is a problem that you can't fix. And if you get one of those things in line, one of your relationships in line, there's something else that, that feels broken. If you have a right view of yourself and a right view of God, you can still experience alienation and brokenness with others. You may have a right view of yourself and have positive self-esteem, but still not be in harmony with God. We, need a we have a problem that's bigger than we can solve on our own, and we need a God who can come in and fix that for us. It's usually deeper than we are willing to go. But notice how I said this, that when the serpent comes to Eve, he tries to, to distance the woman from God and his, uh, and his goodness. What does he say? Did God actually say? But then in verse 8, when they're hiding themselves, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Who approaches them? These are things that we need to notice in the text as we're reading them is when there's a, there's a word that's being used commonly and then there's a switch. In this case, it's Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. Who comes walking in the cool of the day? Yahweh, the covenant God, the one who had created all things, not generic Elohim name of God, covenant name of God, Yahweh. He comes to them. Then in Genesis, and he speaks to them. And, and of course, we see that there's a curse placed on the world. But in 15, Genesis 3.15, we see a promise. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman speaking to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know that this Genesis 3.15 just was, uh, it's been interpreted differently throughout time, especially in the Old Testament. But after Jesus came onto the earth and died and resurrected, 
This passage, beginning with Irenaeus in the second century, began to be interpreted as a promise. Began to be interpreted as a promise, and they, uh, it's believed to be the most explicit, uh, earliest explicit teaching of the, the Christian gospel of messianic interpretation to be found. And that's what Irenaeus said. And at, at that point, it became common to interpret the passage this way. So you might've heard this, but this is the first mention of good news. But I want you to think about the way in which this good news actually comes. You see, every other religion, every other uh, 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 worldview actually says that, the, that it's good advice of you. This is how you can get to God. The gospel actually says, this is good news of a God coming near you. It's the only one of all the worldviews, of all the religions, Christianity is the only one where a God comes toward us. Christianity is a place where Jesus comes as the champion. Where Adam failed, we have a Jesus, we have a Savior who comes and doesn't fail. We have a promise here. Adam and Eve would die. Humanity would eventually just continue and multiply by the mercy of God but humanity would continue to be estranged and run from God and feel alienated from him. This promise is a promise that God is saying, I'm going to move toward you. And even the act of moving toward his people is a grace. He doesn't have to. You know that God doesn't have to move toward Adam and Eve here. They had failed him, but he still comes as a good father and says, what have you done? What have you done? No matter how bad things are in your life right now, no matter how bad you've blown it, no matter how bad your situation looks, God has made a promise to restore the brokenness. Adam and Eve needed to wait. They eventually died and were, uh, felt this alienation, but they didn't, God didn't leave them without a promise. He would fix things. He made a promise to fulfill his word and secure restoration. You see that Jesus, this is in 1 John, the reason why the Son of God has appeared is, is to destroy the works of the devil. You can't destroy the works of the devil on your own. You can't fix your problems on your own. You need a God to come and fix those for you, and that's what he promises you in Jesus. Jesus has already done it. You see, where Adam failed, Jesus didn't fail. John Newton, in his letters, uh, which is a great little book, he says, blessed be the God that we... Uh, blessed be to God that we fight with an enemy already vanquished by our Lord. Do you know that? That the enemy you fight has already been vanquished, not by the might and power of your own hand, but by the powerful hand of our Savior. Luke 4, which we had read earlier, shows us Jesus making war with the serpent. As I said, my old professor Mike Williams said, and, and a serpent crept into the garden and Adam killed it. Well, guess what? Adam didn't kill it, but the second Adam did. The serpent crept up and tempted Jesus in the same way he tempted the first Adam. But, Adam, uh, but Jesus hears and listens to the voice of his father, who's already told him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, before he has victory over the serpent, which is just awesome. He comes to Jesus and Jesus kills the serpent, but not without the serpent dealing a death blow to him. Jesus is the new, the true, and the better Adam faced the same temptations of Adam, but didn't fail. And because of what he's done, we now have reconciliation with God for all of us who are in union with him, who place our faith and our trust in him. This is the, what gets us the smile of the father. 
You can toil, you can labor, but until you see Jesus doing all that was required for you, you'll never feel like he's smiling at you. Unless you're doing perfectly, I can guarantee you that you never are. So close with an illustration. When I was uh, younger, JJ, I think was around one or two years old. Um, I woke up and he was, he had been uh, sick and um, we didn't know, but he was, he was, he had, he had, uh, thrown up. And, uh, and so I heard him over the monitor and I ran to his room and tried to get him. He's maybe one or two. So I get him out of his crib. And you know, you do that number where you're like, you know, running him to the restroom. And so I did and I got him there, but he had already like pretty much was finished by the time I got him over the toilet to finish. Um, and there was this great moment where he turns around and he looks at me um, and he goes like this. He has vomit all over himself. And I look at him and I'm just like, Son, clean yourself up. No. I look at him and, uh, and I, I pick him up reluctantly. I embrace him and I get his mess on myself. But I pick him up and I, I remember telling him, like, son, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I was reflecting over that, passage, that, that story, you know, as I was thinking about this sermon. And I realized that that's what God does for us. You come to him with your mess, with your sin, with your brokenness. And he comes because of Jesus and he picks you up and he hugs you. He embraces you and he says, it's going to be okay. You don't have to clean yourself up. Who, who do you think cleaned up? My son didn't make him clean himself. I cleaned him up, picked him up, got him back in bed. And he probably woke up multiple times and threw up the rest of the night. But such, is beautiful, such a beautiful picture of, I think, of the way that God approaches us. He doesn't make us clean ourselves up. He comes, takes the mess on himself and Jesus, dies because of that, and then he cleans us off. He's not saying clean yourself up. He's offering you cleansing. That's the God that we have. So don't be confused. When the devil tempts you to believe that your identity should be placed in your work and how well you're performing, in your whatever it may be, in your relationships working well, all of that, don't be confused. Hear the words of a father who loves you and gives you a blessing because of Jesus before you perform. You know that. Because Jesus performed perfectly for you, the father looks at you and says, if you're in union with Jesus, you have the congratulations, the blessing before you do a thing. You know that. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Um, Thank you that you didn't leave us. You didn't leave your people to clean up their own mess. Lord, you made a promise, even at the very beginning, Lord, when we broke things, you made a promise to fix it. And so thank you. Thank you that if we are in you, in union with you, Jesus, we have the smile of a father who loves us and, um, um, and, uh, and, and a guarantee, a guarantee that you, um, uh, you'll hold us, that you're the one who cleans us, that you embrace us and that you're the one who will take us and, and, um, um, with you. So Lord, as we experience the brokenness and the devil tempts us to, to get confused about who you are and whether you love us or not and drives us far from you, I pray that the gospel would drive us, gives us the means and the power to go toward you, Lord, that we would approach the throne of grace and find it where we need it. So I pray that for your church, for Trinity Grace and, um, and for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.